Hello, welcome to an episode of James Bond and Friends. Um, this week we are joined by our new guest, Mark Edlitz. The topic of this week is what if and um, the multiverse of Bond and the hypotheticals of what could have happened through history. Um, but I just wanted to make a quick note that um, back in 2001, comedian Lewis Black pointed out that he was in Houston, Texas, and uh, he walked out of the comedy club one night and on one corner was a Starbucks. And across the street from that Starbucks in the exact same building was another Starbucks. And he looked back and forth thinking like something was playing tricks in his eyes. Um, but it was a Starbucks within a Starbucks. And he said that was when he knew it was the end of the universe. <laughs> the reason I bring this up is we're doing two podcasts at the exact same time. And Paul is recording another episode. So... I was wondering what the very tangential link to Bond was going to be from that story. Like, what if Bond loves lattes? Yeah, we have met the end of the Bondverse because we're doing two episodes of the same podcast at the same time in five different countries today. Wow. Nice brag. Yep, there we go. So with that, this week we are joined by Phil, Calvin, Lisa and Mark for the first time. Would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Hey, this is Phil Nobile Jr. Uh, I'm on this podcast, not the other one that's happening at the same time. <laughs> I turned team, down team one to be in the other. No, I, I didn't know about the other one. Uh, now I'm going to spend this whole podcast thinking about what's going on in that other podcast. <laughs> I wonder what they're talking about over in that other podcast. Um, and do they have the, like the editor of a different horror magazine on that podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Imagine they did. <laughs> I know. Well, what if what if there was the, an anti-feminist professor on that other podcast? <laughs> All right, sorry. I'm Phil Nobile, editor of Fangoria and um, uh, Distractor. Sorry. (laughs) And uh, I'm Calvin Dyson, and I stay so on point that uh, all that's left for me to say is that I have a YouTube channel talking about Bond, and today I'm drinking a Blackwell rum and uh, Coke Zero. It's very nice. Uh, I'm Dr. Lisa Funnell. I'm a university professor, award-winning author, and podcaster who specializes in gender in James Bond and other action films, and I am drinking a matcha latte. Mm. Not from Starbucks. Not from Starbucks. (laughs) I am Mark Edlitz. I am a James Bond fan, and sometimes I'm an author. I've written two books on Bond, one called The Many Lives of James Bond, which is interviews with creators of different Bond stories, as well as interviews with actors who have played 007 in different media, like radio and video games, as well as film. And I also just published a book called The Lost Adventures of James Bond, which is about uh, overlooked aspects of the Bond franchise. What do you mean sometimes an author? You just like plug two books about James Bond that you put out in back-to-back years. You are a James Bond author. So I just want you to get full credit for okay, the, the amazing work that you're putting out there. We lift each other up on this podcast, Mark. Yeah, very uplifting. I, I love it, love it. So Mark, would you like to tell us a little bit about your journey for making this second book, um, how it came yeah. about? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, so I... I I wrote a book called the how to be a superhero, which was interviews with actors who played superheroes for the last seven decades. And I squeezed James Bond in there, uh, which was completely inappropriate because James Bond is not a superhero, but I argued that he wore a tuck. So that kind of is his his superhero costume. And then I realized, Hey, I should just be writing about James Bond. So Mm -hmm. I wrote that first book, the many lives of James Bond. And I let my research and imagination take me anywhere it wanted to, and I reached out to whoever I felt like it and wrote about whatever. And then I was 
and then I, my publisher said, you have way too much material. It should be seven. The book, the many lives of James Bond should be 75,000 words. Um, and you've got like 300,000 words or something like that. <laughs> so make it less. And I said, can I be a hundred thousand words and not a word more? And he said, yes. So that first book became just an examination of the character of James Bond and what makes him tick as told through the creator. So is the, is the character James Bond in the films the same as the novels, is it the same as the comic books, the same as the video games, the same as the radio? And I would argue no. Um, but then I had all the, this other material that I was looking at that was all sort of overlooked, lost Bond material. And I'm very, very loose with the word lost James Bond. None of this is truly lost. If I can find it, anyone else could find it. Uh, some some of the lost material is just out of print or forgotten uh, or not uh, commercially accessible like James Bond Jr. or a bunch of old books like the like 003, The Adventures of James Bond Jr. or those novelizations or those Choose Your Own Adventure books. Uh, but they're all there. You could just go on you know eBay or Amazon and, and get them. So they're not really lost. Uh, and then also unused Bond films and ideas, uh, the biggest of which is is the lost Dalton era. And that to, that, that to me was the biggest hook on your book, Mark, was it was great to be able to buy a book with Dalton on the cover again. <laughs> mm-hmm. we, we, we must thank uh, Sean for that. Uh, he had the, he sort of pushed me in that direction. It's really hard to do a book cover for James Bond because usually yes. you do you either do Sean Connery, which represents all Bonds, or you do the latest, which is Daniel Craig, and none of them felt right. So there is a version which is just like the the gun. Uh, but he, uh, Sean was, you know, Sean, Sean, Sean pushed for Dalton and we, we came up with this Thano snap idea hmm. uh, where you sort of see Dalton disappear. And the disappearance is obviously his third and fourth Bond movies. Yes, a lot of people kind of know some version of the story of the third movie, but the, it was the fourth that really intrigued me because that's very rarely covered in bond um writing right yeah i mean what i what i what i think is sort of interesting about the third is that uh people often conflate different approaches into one into one third film and Mm. there's really two i i i identify them as two separate threads to me there's although they have similar plot elements one is a sort of a serious the, the first version that Alfonso Guerrero did is a is a serious Bond film, more of a thriller with huge action elements and 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 high tech. And then the other one by the writers of uh, Stop or My Mom Will Shoot is 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 it's, it's a broad action comedy, you know, with, with a big emphasis on the comedy with a lot of the, you know, I'm too old for this stuff, which was which was big in you know, big in the late eighties, early nineties. But then what you're talking about uh, was a, was a fun discovery was Richard Smith's uh, reunion with death, which would have been Dalton's fourth film. And what's interesting to me about that is that it, that it goes back to Moonraker, that, 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 that first part of Moonraker before the mission starts in earnest, when you're seeing Bond's life at the office and his interactions with the secretary Richard Smith got that all in there. And what was sort of fun 
about researching that was Richard Smith is such a common name that, that it was very hard <laughs> mm-hmm. to find the actual Richard Smith because the 19, the early 90s Variety article identified him as an actor or writer, I think like a makeup guy and a producer. And so I contacted everybody who um, had anything to do with show business whose name was Richard Smith. And that took a very long time to get anywhere close to the right Richard Smith. But what was so great is uh, about that is that they had enough confidence. They're like, well, you know, all Bond fans are always say, why aren't we getting them every two years or every other year like we used to? And, and we all know that that's just not practical anymore. Uh, the commercial reasons, logistical reasons, creative reasons. It takes a while to write these things uh, and do it well. And they thought as an experiment, what if we get a jump start on writing Dalton's fourth film? Because we know the third one is he's going to be great in the third one. And so th- that's what this one was. It was uh, sort of a throwback to, it drew on elements of uh, Yulin Live Twice as well. Hmm. So that was a fun discovery. Awesome. So what we'd like to do is go around the table and everybody pitch their what if of the Bond multiverse, if they could change one thing in history uh, and make their case for it. Um, who, who would like to throw the first idea out? I'll go. Go for uh, it. I'll, and so mine, it's actually like three, but it's more like what if uh, characters. Um, and so I'm going to give you all three because uh, the third one's funny. Um, the first one is what if Diana Ross played solitaire and live and let die? It's mm. something that has always been on my mind in terms of the casting. Um, we've talked on this podcast through our watch along of Live and Let Die. Um, some of the issues in terms of racial representation, it's there in the novels. It makes its way to some degree in the films. And uh, one of the issues that I do have with the film is this idea that Bond can sleep with whomever he pleases, but Solitaire um, is the one who uh, is being threatened by, say, the potent black man, right? And Bond doesn't receive any sort of, say, uh, negative portrayal for sleeping with uh, Rosie Carver and Solitaire and kind of forcing his way into Solitaire's bed. Uh, Whereas we have this typical trope, which is the threat of miscegenation and uh, the potent black man and his sort of threat towards uh, the virginal white woman. And so that's a trope that is brought into the film or it it, it touches on it or taps into it. And I'm wondering how the film would look and how it would play differently if it was a black woman in in that role. Um, So that's just something I think about in my James Bond course. We're going to talk about it in a few weeks, uh, but it's definitely on the tip of my tongue. The second one has to do with my love of Michelle Yeoh. What if Michelle Yeoh came back (laughs) and she was there, say, at the beginning of Die Another Day? I know that there were some rumors about bringing her back, being a point of contact. And what would it look like if Bond had a former love interest um, show up in in a subsequent film? We're probably going to see that with No Time to Die. But it would be more true to, say, the novels where Bond has a love interest. And then we hear at the very least about uh, their breakup in a subsequent film. So there is a sense of connection and continuity across the text. And I would just love Michelle Yeoh back in a Bond thing. And my last one is just a funny one. What if Walker DePlank was a villain? We've broken her brain with these James Bond Jr. viewings. <laughs> <laughs> We're bringing it back. Bring it back. 
So my third one's a funny one, but the other two, it really has to do with like either casting of women or bringing right. women back. Yeah. Do, do you, and we haven't talked about this yet, Lisa, but do you buy that Bond and Waylon actually have some kind of relationship at the end of Tomorrow Never Dies? Is it, yeah. or is it just like a, yeah, we survived and it's the whole survival kind of Kiss. thing of getting horny. Yeah. Um, I, I, <laughs> I, honestly, I I feel yes, like it is. It's like if you, if you if you survive a near death experience, it's the apparently it's like inbuilt into our DNA to go reproduce because you know oh we almost died let's go reproduce. Yeah. Huh. Like and that's why on say films like right. the Bachelor, uh, the t- TV shows like the Bachelor franchise, they usually have them do things that are like risky or death defying, right? So that they have a greater they bond they form a closer bond right away. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, in terms of, of that, I feel as though there is this broader idea when it comes to the archetype of the, the Bond girl, that Bond is going to end up either with dating or sleeping with her by the end. And in some respects, we can see a, a connection with some women, right? And you're like, okay, I can see it. Like I get him with Kara Malovi and the Living Daylights. Like I see the relationship, I feel it, I get it. It makes sense to me. But I think that there are instances where it is forced. And I would probably say uh, Melina Havelock and For Your Eyes Only is a really mm-hmm. good example of like, oh, where did this happen? Where did this come from? And I felt the same thing with Waylon, where there was zero interest. Uh, they had chemistry, I think, as, as partners, but as love of interests, I didn't really feel it. And it just felt like it was something tacked on at the end because it was what they were doing. So yeah, I, I felt it was completely forced. And then, you know, to go to your point, James, if it was one of those things where it's like, oh, we almost died, let's have sex, lots of endorphins and move on, then sure, <laughs> she can show up at, in another film and it would be like, hey, we had a fun time. Just like, was it... Um, Polo, the, the the one in the the hot tub. Yeah, Polo, you know, and she was supposed to be originally triple X, right? Mm-hmm. And so in something like that would have made sense, or at least the two of them had a previous relationship. Like that strikes me as more of a natural thing after multiple films of, you know, you're gonna, you're going to run into your ex at some point in one of these films <laughs> in the small side community. Isn't it interesting that it's just constantly beneath the surface? They've, they've always talked about it and they flirted with it. And I think even Maude Adams talked about maybe having a cameo in View to a Kill and mm-hmm. that whole story that went, went there. But they're finally doing an ex-girlfriend like that, that we spent a, a film with already in No Time to Die. Right. You know, they, you know Paris Carver was got her, her screen time. I haven't clocked it, but it's minimal. But the the idea that they're finally cashing in on this idea that they've been sort of dancing around doing for decades. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think the difference, say, with Paris Carver is we didn't see her in a previous film. Exactly. Right. And so yeah. we see the aftermath, but we don't see the Thank start God. of it. <laughs> it would have been a very different film had we seen it before. But yeah, I think it's a really interesting concept. I don't know how it'll play. I don't know what, you know, the over under of Madeline Swan surviving in the film is. Um, so I, I'll see. I, it'll be interesting to see how they play with it. I'm kind of glad that her character has a chance of redemption with the audience because I don't think there's a lot of love out there for Madeline Swan. Yeah, she was underserved. 
in, by Spectre, Spectre. Script, for sure. Well, I'm glad that they seem yeah. to be doing something more interesting with the character, like based on, I've only seen the released promotional materials, marketing materials, all that, but from what I gather, she does not die in the pre-credit sequence and the rest of the film isn't Bond going out for revenge against her killer, because right. if they'd have gone down that whole route, that would have just been so uh, rote and I've seen this before, <laughs> it's kind of, yeah, it's dull. That and- not been what Lisa was asking for. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad that they seem to be doing something a bit more um, interesting. Mm-hmm. Mark, your book covers a little bit about, doesn't it cover like the Jinx spinoff and stuff? Yeah, there, there were a couple of spinoffs that didn't go anywhere. And um, Lisa, did you feel, did you say everything you wanted to? I didn't want to. Unless anyone has any comments about Walker DePlank. <laughs> no, we do not. We can just move the, on. Well, that's actually a segue into mine. Mine is, what if James Bond Jr. were great? Ooh. <laughs> were now, great? Ooh. Yeah, like a real <laughs> what, what if James Bond Jr. was great? Let's fight mm-hmm. talk here. Okay. So, <laughs> I'm listening. Uh, so the... In, in, in my book, I was able to find uh, the, the, the series Bible, which explained their, their original plans for the cartoon. And their original plans were more ambitious than what we wound up seeing. Their original plans are more ambitious. They're more like Batman the Animated Series, which was a show that served kids, but was also something that adults could watch and enjoy. And their original plan was to have uh, tell a mini James Bond movie in each episode. And their goal, uh, as described as by the co-creator, was to get as close to 007 as TV standards would permit. Hmm. And the, the original concept was that James Bond Jr., uh, his, his parents were missing, presumably uh, kidnapped by scum. And so the overarching mythology, if you will, of the show would be about him trying to save his parents, find out where they were, get them back while having standalone episodes that, you know, villain of the week, sort of like what the X-Files did in some ways. Hmm. And they were originally going to have a animated gun barrel, uh, anima- you know, just like the movies. They were talking about using the, the, the James Bond theme. I'm sure that was a financial thing. Uh, consideration why they didn't and they wanted to do a more realistic design and avoid wall-to-wall action uh uh and uh the 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 bible also explains bond james bond jr's character in a way that also explains 007 uh he disregards the rules when in service of the greater good uh so i thought that that's something that applies to both and the gadgets also, uh, the, the, the Bible said, shouldn't be so specific that they're designed for one use that he finds himself in. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Kept, you know, like, you know, like the Batman TV show where it would be like anti-shark repellent. That's only good if you have a shark biting your leg on a ladder. <laughs> but, they, but but they were conscious, or at least their ambition was was conscious enough to try to avoid that. And if it was great, there'd be more seasons. Uh, there'd be more that both as you as you guys have spoken on this very podcast. You know, there were there was there was game books, there was video games, there was action figures, there was uh, 
novelizations. There, there was also a choose your own adventure style novelization. Um, and if it was if it was good, if the show was really great, it could have shown what a successful Bond spinoff could be. And this is what I was. This is what made me think about what you said, Jinx. Is that's one of the reasons in my imagination why we don't have more Bond spinoffs mm. because when they're not great, they don't really help the franchise. The co-creator was talking about one of Michael G. Wilson's uh, hopes. It was to protect and serve the franchise by doing James Bond Jr. Uh, whether it did or did not, you know, uh, for, for other people to, to, to say. But it does show you what happens when something isn't beloved. It, it might have been one of the reasons why we didn't get that Jinx spinoff, mm -hmm. why we didn't get that Wailing spinoff, which uh, they were speaking about. Uh, that's what they wanted to do. That's what um, was proposed to Eon. That's what the studio asked for. Uh, so, yeah. So I read that section of your book, Mark, but I, I didn't. I don't. I, I might be missing a detail, or I've just forgotten. But don't don't you feel that that uh, that that venture shot itself in the foot by not partnering with a proper animation studio or not prop, prop, a proper studio partner? Because just in that same year, as as Bill would have brought up, um, they were doing the Batman animated series, and with the the muscle of Warner Brothers behind that, it's it's a classic of animation. Yes, but this is this felt like some cash in bottom of the barrel uh, thing that, that they didn't want to like give a proper uh, amount of resources to. That that's what happened uh, because that's sort of the mill at the time of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the real Ghostbusters. Uh, that was the the formula for how to tell these right, and they did not break the mold. Uh, and it, it does look cheap and it does look like all the others. Uh, and it doesn't look as beautifully animated as Batman. Mm -hmm. But what they wanted to do was was very ambitious and they wanted to tell stories that were more interesting than that you would find on you know, after school at four o'clock. Sure. Do you, do you think that was the whole risk reward analysis? Because yeah. Dalton's box office in the States with License to Kill was disappointing. And it looked, I mean, he even said in interviews that that's probably the last film, right? And so right. finding a studio partner to drop the size of coin that they'd need to do, like Warner Brothers did for Batman, which was Batman's kind of an evergreen franchise. Sure. Probably didn't think about it. But can you imagine had the franchise started, had we been going through Bond mania, like in the peak 60s at the time that they mm. would float an animated series, mm -hmm. there'd be somebody out there willing to drop serious cash on it to do it the right way. Yeah. No, I think that's a great point. Ten years on either side, it feels like it would have been a whole different animal. Yep. Yeah. So it's just it was a victim of its timing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was terrible but then, but then, timing. But then you could argue without the legal gap, they wouldn't have done it. Oh yes, right. I think I think that's a safe assumption that if if that they needed to do something to keep Bond in people's minds to introduce Bond to a younger generation to, and build them up, like you know the way Marvel does with their superheroes, they have I said superheroes really funny, I put a real big emphasis on heroes, um, but the way they do it is they they you know there's the the more adult superheroes there's the almost R-rated ones that you could see there's the PG-13 there's the PG there's the G you know there's a superhero squad they're really good at finding different entry points for kids uh, that 
uh, Bond has not been able to to date, with the exception, with the argu- with the arguable exception of James Bond uh, or young James Bond, I should say. Yes, the Charlie Hickson series. Yeah, yeah. You could argue that the film franchise the franchise is also kind of failing to reach younger audiences too, um, mm-hmm. currently. Um, but to, to counterpoint your what if, Mark, if Please. James Bond Jr. was a, like a well-produced studio, big back success, we wouldn't have had MC Oddjob. <laughs> <laughs> Love him. There's no reason that MC Oddjob couldn't have worked better. <laughs> in, um... And back to your point, Mark, it's something that you said earlier about the notion of superhero. Um, you know, when I teach James Bond, I call him a superhero, but I put a space between super and hero. Oh, so not to confuse him with, uh, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe and DC Comics and characters who tend to have like bodily modifications and, and superpowers, but to recognize that James Bond has omnicompetence, right? And he seems to be able to do what he needs to do when he's got gadgets and he's action oriented. And so he is pretty super at what he does, right? Um, but it's, it's I, I usually just put the space to differentiate it. And if we think about it in that way, then maybe there were different possibilities to treat him the way that we have treated other superheroes as one word um, in terms of the different places and and the spaces. And it's interesting because I feel as though when we, I know that there are a lot of comparisons, and I make them as well, between what goes on in the James Bond universe and, say, the Marvel Comics Cinematic Universe. And I think something that oftentimes gets overlooked is that you're dealing with, in in essence, like one set of one cortex, right? It's it's comprised of a series, but it's a character and a couple characters. And it came from Ian Fleming and his imagination. And then it has expanded in pretty interesting ways since the 1950s. And it sort of blossomed in bloom. Whereas when we think about the Marvel comics or DC comics, you have also these very small pockets of separate, disparate um, figures and, and tropes and imagery. And I think Marvel does a beautiful job of weaving things together and and I, I recently did a, um, a marathon of them all. And, and watching them separately is a very different experience than watching them in conjunction and seeing the, those connections. But you're dealing with just a different set of material. Um, and it's it, you can mobilize it in different types of ways. And I think sometimes we just confuse the fact that it's superhero with, that are connected as a word and as a sort of a, a universe pre-connected versus superhero separated. And it's just one figure and one franchise that is being discussed and expanded. And there's oftentimes only so much you can do with just one figure and one franchise. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, people, they, they you know, when, they, when you do a spinoff, you have to look at other characters. Uh, and that's why people are asking for a Money Petty series, you know, or, you know, do... do uh, but with James Bond, it, it really is seems to be centered around one one sole figure, and uh, I I think he's an adaptable figure for each medium. But the, you do change something. For example, on the on James Bond in the video games, just a more violent figure than he is in the novels, because the medium of video games requires often for you to shoot people a lot. And that could be fun when you're playing video games, but but that changes his character when you put him in a different medium. And for some reason, with a character like Batman, people are happy to see 
you know, Adam West, or at least I am, Adam West can't be Batman or over the, it's not probably can't be, or over the top Batman or silly at the same time as having Christian Bale as Batman and comic book fans are able to hold those two very different things in their head at the same time. But Bond fans seem a little more reluctant to have different kinds of Bonds. And not even Bruce Wayne as Batman. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Which is, you know, that's probably our version of Codename Theory. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we won't go into it. It's interesting that Lisa brings up comic books because, um, the you know, the comic books are where – this indulgence kind of starts this whole this whole concept of what if they've really really you know f- fans get really excited about roads not taken alternate versions uh elseworlds which was a thing that's kicked off in the 80s but marvel started the whole what if thing and now it's about to be an animated series on disney plus um where they take the, the things that you are familiar with and sort of rejigger them into a you know, unfamiliar, you know, what if uh, Peggy Carter got the super serum, I think is going to be the plot of the what if on Disney plus. Um, so I don't know. I, I always love the, the what if conceit because it, it just sort of lets us peek into alternate universes and, and, you know, gets us off the track that, that we're used to and that we've absorbed up and down. I didn't mean to cut you off, Calvin. No, no, no. Um, if you want to segue into your, uh, what if pick, uh, from that, then that seems right. It's it's not, but yeah, sure, I can go. Uh, <laughs> I was just rambling, you know. The whole what if thing just it just gets fans buzzing because you know, like reality is kind of boring sometimes, and we know reality up and down, and when they get the chance to peek into a thing that didn't happen or a thing that could have happened, it just it gets the synapses firing, right? Mm. Um, my what if take this journey with me, and I'm going to start with a clickbaity kind of headline. What <laughs> if Sean Connery? What if Sean Connery liked playing James Bond? Oh, I'm clicking. <laughs> I'm clicking on that. Now you know we like as or, as, or, or, or what if what if Cubby Broccoli paid him appropriately? Yeah, no. This my my journey's different. My journey has okay. to come from Sean Connery's heart a little bit, but you know the um, you you we all know the story about Connery being unhappy, not being paid well, being bored with the role by the third or fourth film, and uh, and looking for the exit and. And that being the impetus for the franchise to become this this uh, malleable thing where we can have different inter- interpretations of Bond and whatnot. But my what if is is about what if, what if Sean really enjoyed playing the character and was actually invested in the character, uh, which I guess you know could be financially James. Um, but, but what if he was excited to keep playing him into the seventies, into mm-hmm. an, an era of cinema that. Everyone outside of this podcast associates with gritty realism and, uh, and and more adult storytelling. The new Hollywood of the '70s sort of took the sheen off of the studio system pictures, you know, that, that Technicolor, uh, candy color look, and, and got kind of gritty everywhere in cinema except for the James Bond franchise, which got mm-hmm. kind of more out there and sillier. Like it, it, it was in a bubble exempt from that new Hollywood. But Sean was – when he wasn't making James Bond movies, he was making relationships with directors like Sidney Lumet who would really start to blossom in the 70s and blossom with Sean Connery in films like The Offense. And then Connery did um, I think The Anderson Tapes as well. So Connery was all in on this sort of new Hollywood gritty realism thing. And I wonder if he, if he really and genuinely loved this job. I wonder if he could have taken this franchise into that era – uh, with a grittier sort of style that it never would have descended into the camp that that you saw it hap- uh, kind of become under under Roger Moore's tenure. 
I think that's a lot of fun. I think it's a really fun idea. Uh, uh, putting it, watching Connery age into Bond and almost play in different genres, mm-hmm. you know, to be, you know, Sidney Lumet's James Bond. That's is, what I'm it, talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> he, he, that was his most prolific collaboration. And it'd be interesting to see sort of, uh, quote unquote, more adult James Bond. I, we almost got a little bit of that with Our Majesty's Secret Service, and then they they reverted back to more comfortable territory. Uh, and then you could have seen him grow old in age. Uh, you almost see that with you. You do see that with Tom Cruise and, and Mission Impossible. I don't remember when the first the, the Palma one was. Ninety six. Ninety six. Yeah. The, the 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 span of time from Cruise's first to the present one is. Now twenty five years. Wow! Lord. Yes, exactly. And nobody yells at him that he's only six. Yeah, that's Doctor <laughs> No to the Living Daylights. <laughs> it's Doctor No to the Living Daylights, exactly. Um, wow. And you've got and you've got Connery on the other end of the whole thing, playing Bond again and Never Say Never Again. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that he could have played him throughout the seventies if he was moved to do so, if he had given him something interesting to do with the character and the territory. And I think he went and found it in other places, but also Connery kind of dried up a little in the 70s. He made some, some uh, I think a movie called Wrong is Right and uh, Meteor yeah. weren't so great. Outland was pretty good. Um, but had had Connery, like I said in the beginning question, if Connery liked playing James Bond, we could have gotten a whole different decade of Bond films out of the deal. Hmm. Interesting. And yeah. a totally different aesthetic. Yeah, you know, like uh, if you've seen all those paperbacks when they sort of re-envision the paperbacks for different eras, those '70s covers where you know Bond's got those big sideburns and <laughs> you know uh, there's like a, a sort of a black exploitation vibe on some of these covers. Um, but a dirty Harry. Dirty Harry. That's it. That's what I'm looking for. Uh, I I think it's I don't know. I can almost picture it, and it's exciting to think about that, that if Connery had sort of. The way the way that you see, for example, Daniel Craig now waving in directors, if you'd gotten Connery to that place, I think that could have been really interesting. Hmm. It would have been interesting to to see how, like, if the franchise would have, because one of the things about bringing in new actors is that you do get this rejuvenation every time, you know, every decade or other decade or whatnot, when you bring in someone new who might bring in a different set of fans, really, with their own style. And imagining like the series as like you know a 20 30 year thing with one person through it all um i guess tom cruise has handled it very well with mission impossible those films are more popular now than i think they've ever been um certainly uh, those first two aren't looked on very fondly um that would have been really interesting to know what the fan base would have been like if it would have been because one of the things i love about the bond fan base is that it is such a eclectic bunch of people and people come into it for different things it's kind of nuts to think that license to kill and casino royale can exist in the same film series as moonraker and diamonds are forever and yet you know some someone likes all of those films and each each of us have different favorites and all that kind of thing there's a great variety and i wonder if we would have still had that had connery been the you know through yeah. line I, along with the producers. I think, I think you would to some degree because if you look at say Doctor No to Diamonds Are Forever, those films are night and day to me. And it's mm. and it's still under one person's tenure. Or or even not you know, taking it back to On Her Majesty's to, to Doctor No, I think that or you know, the Live and Let Die to View to a Kill, they, within one actor's tenure there still is you're capable of, of having shifting tones and whatnot. And to me it's a great sadness that Daniel Craig's don't have that. I really mm. wanted to have for him to have just a lark somewhere in mm-hmm. there 
like just a fun adventure somewhere in there would have been would have been pretty cool. Um, mm. So I think it's definitely possible. Although I was painting a pretty grim picture of like a Sydney Lumet directed Bond movie <laughs> in seventy seven. But, but that's what I love about um, you know the the Heineken commercial, the Chase. Yes, that's on the yes. boat. Yeah. That's yeah. what I, that's what I love about it is because they they took Daniel Craig and they put him in a Roger Moore movie. Absolutely, yeah. that's a nice little what if in and of itself. That little commercial. Okay, but speaking of uh, Roger Moore and as a Roger Moore fan, I hate this idea, Phil. I know. You know, I think you would erase for me um, some of the aspects of, of the Bond franchise that I love. And I'm not sure. Here's the thing. I think Sean Connery was leaning towards having more witty quips. I think that that's something I've seen interviews with him saying yeah. he wanted to have invested in the dialogue, you know, a little bit more more wit. And who knows where we would have gone with it. But I think I think it was a comment that maybe Calvin made one of the beauties of the James Bond franchise, I think, is the fact that you keep changing out the actors and you change the tone and you change the direction mm-hmm. and you try a serious Bond and you try, you know, one with a lot of camp and then you try this. And I like the variety in it. And as a fan, having studied this, obviously, professionally, but even as a fan through watching and rewatching it with with with, with everybody at home – even my personal preferences have shifted. Like I kind of used to like this film and now I'm leaning, you know, towards this way. I don't know why I am enjoying Dalton more and more. I cannot explain it, Um, (laughs) but it just kind of happened. It's like falling in love. You're like, when did this happen? Um, (laughs) It's it's the leather jacket, isn't it? Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) this is what did it for me. But I I, I just, I, I don't actually know if we did the Connery thing if you would have continued on with as many films right. and if we would still have a franchise today, because once he'd be done, I think we'd be like, Harder like I don't replace. think, yeah, like we can't, it, we can't replace Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible now. Well, all right. Right. real quick Harrison on that Ford though. And Indy. Yes, in Harrison 20 years, in 20 years, they'll probably bring it back. <clears throat> like low, low key, they were trying to hand off Mission Impossible to Jeremy Renner in the fourth yeah. one. It did not work. Yeah. Uh, and, and same thing with Bourne. Poor Jeremy Renner. <laughs> <laughs> just can't get his own franchise. <laughs> it didn't work. It didn't work out for him. Um, so yeah, that's a fair point. But I do want to say that my version is a what if? It's a it's a multiverse thing. So mm. much like I've got my Sydney Lumet Bond franchise in the seventies. Much like there's another podcast happening right now somewhere. <laughs> Roger Moore's Roger Moore's tenure is untouched in the Roger Moore verse. At the same time. Um, no, I hear you though. Yeah. And, and, and that's a, that's an interesting question because the way I'm describing it, you would have to come out of the sort of campy nadir of diamonds are forever into a more realistic space with, with, uh, Sidney Lumet and Connery. And then what, what, where could it go from there? Mm-hmm. Would he, it would be a, it would be a hard reboot, which, you know, the, we have learned the franchise is capable of, uh, enduring, mm-hmm. but could you do a reboot in 1981? I don't know. There might have been a big ba- a big gap, right? Mm-hmm. All right, shall I shall I go with mine? Hit okay, it. Okay, Calvin, lay it on. Okay, it. so th- this is uh, much like Phil just said about this multiverse thing. Like the Bond films, like as much as you know, fun as it is to talk about the possibility of Connery and Majesty's Secret Service, or the you know the third or fourth Dalton films, and all of that kind of stuff. I'm kind when I look at the film series, it's like I wouldn't want to like. I wouldn't want to like click my fingers and remove something, but have something else in its place. I'm kind of, even with the ones that I don't like that much, I'm kind of happy that they're there. I'm happy that Dine of the Day exists in this lineage, even though I might not necessarily like all elements of it. So this is very much a complete, like, I'm not saying 
with my choice, I want to erase the the Daniel Craig films from existence or anything like that. But the biggest what if for me, the thing that I would love to slip into the other universe and see what it's like is the uh, the Quentin Tarantino Casino Royale starring <laughs> Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> sure. <laughs> that, <laughs> that would be like, that would be my absolute kind of multiverse holy grail uh, for multiple reasons. Uh, to talk about like what that film itself would be from a Bond perspective, having Pierce Brosnan, who was then, what, mid-50s, something like that, um, to have an older Bond doing what is the Bond origin story, and we think of it as a young Bond story, particularly uh, mm. after Daniel Craig did it, and he's a younger age, and you know, he's getting his double O status for the first time, and I, I, I just think the, the story to me is just a, a first Bond mission, and to do it as someone's potentially last Bond mission would have been really interesting for an older Bond. I, I don't know how that would have quite have played. But then I think perhaps more interesting is what Tarantino as a director would have done to the film series on a whole, which, yeah, I mean, if you're a film aficionado and you know the series well enough and you spot things, you can tell that Goldfinger, Thunderbolt and Young Live Twice are all directed by different people and they have their own styles and whatnot. Um, and certainly in the Daniel Craig era, they seem a bit more happy with embracing a director's signature styles, perhaps, and bringing in their own crew and all these sorts of things. But Tarantino's, I've seen pretty much all of his films, and he dabbles with different genres, but every single one is a Tarantino film. Like I, I don't know if he really got the grindhouse brief that he was setting himself for uh, for Death Proof. It, it, like it, it just, it oh. is a Tarantino film. It's not the, it's not really what he's going for. So I find that really interesting because he can do a World War II adventure film and you get Inglorious Bastards out of it. And and it and yet it still feels like such a Tarantino film. And to get him coming in to do what would p- potentially be a, just a one-off, what would that have done if that had been a really big hit? Would that have just meant that the series would then have been bringing in different directors, like a g- different big name guest director every time with their own signature style? And each film is just kind of like a chocolate box. It's like I mean, a chocolate box and it's like, oh, what are we going to have this time? We have no idea. It's just going to be all these directors with their trademarks and very specific sensibilities. Um, so that's, that would have fascinated me an awful lot. I don't think that ever came close to happening in reality, <laughs> uh, but I, it would have been there is, curious. There is a mini version of that with Clive Owen. Oh, the BMW commercial? And BMW went and got half a dozen different directors to make yeah. short films for Clive Owen and a BMW, and they're all different, completely different to each other, right. but it's the same character. Yeah, and that's an exciting um, prospect. There was a Batman comic in like 1990 that was called Legends of the Dark Knight, and the hook was that it was a different creative team, each storyline. They were going to swap them out, and you tune in each you know, our story arc to see the new style of story and the new, the new voice. And, you know, Calvin, when you, you talked about, and I don't, one thing I don't remember is that I think Tarantino said he wanted to make, said it in the fifties. He wanted it to be a period film. Oh yeah. I think he did. Yeah. Yeah. Which is yeah. another layer of wild. If you, if you're looking at it as a Pierce Brosnan vehicle, having Pierce Brosnan suddenly yanked from the nineties into the 1950s. But I think there's a, there's a kernel of what you might've felt in that because it's Casino Royale is a kind of a talk, you know, a talky, talkier than a lot of Bond adventures, I would say, in terms of it being like on a card table for a lot of it. But within Inglorious Bastards, that scene with Fassbender at the bar, mm-hmm. where he, it's just a dialogue scene and it's so tense and so well-directed. Like people, people are reductive about Tarantino, but he directs the hell out of a dialogue scene. He can do action. He was his own cinematographer on Death Proof, so he, he shot all that car stuff himself. And um, mm-hmm. it, like 
he would i think when people hear tarantino bond movie they don't think of what a master he is at dialogue scenes yeah mm-hmm. where really sing in a casino royale adaptation yeah except for the character that would sound like a man <laughs> <laughs> and she'd have her shoes off all the time f-bombs right. feet up mm-hmm. yeah but i think you're right i mean tarantino is a screenwriter at heart and he's somebody who understands not just the content of dialogue but the punctuation the pacing Yes. The use of, of swear words to the point that you're not even phased by them anymore. And when you were talking about uh, this idea of setting it in the 1950s, we've heard from a lot of fans this desire for the next Bond film to be a period Bond film, right? I don't mm. have any qualms of maybe then your Tarantino film gets made now. I mean, a lot of people would go and see that film just to be like, what the heck is Quentin Tarantino going to do with the James Bond film? I would go into it. I don't even have to give me a trailer. I would go into the movie theater and watch it just to see what he could do. And I think that we have a a lot of ideas about Tarantino's style, but he is somebody who is very genre literate. And he he is, I don't want to say fanboy, but he's a cinephile. He's somebody who consumes a lot of films from a variety of cultures and a variety of, of, of disciplines. And he's somebody who is able to, in many ways, emulate uh, style. And so it would be interesting to see his interpretation. But if he did that, I would not want him simply to be the director. I want him to be there as a script writer as well, working mm-hmm. on it from, from concept to actualization in order for it to just sort of have the full flavor that he could bring. It would be interesting nonetheless. Like one way or another, I think people would come out of that film, even if it was a one-off film, right? Like, what are we going to do? We need to get a Bond film out quickly. Let's have Tarantino do it and just sort of put it through um, and and have them sort of be focused and, and move through it. I think it would be interesting. It's never going to happen, but <laughs> what if? What mm. if? Right. 20, I, I mean, 2036 or whatever it is. <laughs> right. I don't think we'll ever see an auteur bond. I'm going to say two contradictory things. One, Eon uh, and Broccoli and Wilson are very supportive of all their collaborators. Mm-hmm. They, 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 they'll, they'll back their horse, as they say. That's why, that's why you've seen it fail with CGI, but that was them. They are believing in their director for Die Another Day. Their director mm-hmm. said, I really think we could take Bond and put CGI on him. And they said, I don't think so. And they, the director said, no, we're going to do it. And they said, okay, <laughs> we'll do that. Uh, and it didn't work there. Or that's why there was that sort of unique editing in Quantum of Solace. Their director said, we're going to do that. The, 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 everyone who I've spoken to who are Bond, and these are people who have elected to speak to me. So so it's not a pure survey. But uh, they've all explained how collaborative Eon is and Michael Wilson and Barbara Rockley are and how they don't pretend to be the how they'll they'll listen to their ideas they'll they'll encourage them they'll create a safe space for expressing them but uh the all the other side of that is bond is not an auteur driven franchise like like mission impossible started out as it's an it's more like tv where the producers of tv you know the showrunners are in charge and they'll they'll empower their directors, but they're doing it within a certain framework and a certain guideline. So, as a fan, as a filmmaker, as a fan of films, I would love to see Quentin Tarantino do a Bond. 
But as mm-hmm. if you put on your Eon hat, that'll never ever happen. As, as Lisa, as Lisa was. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just really want to see Quentin Tarantino direct Pierce Brosnan doing pain face. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine that torture oh scene? <laughs> can i also say when we talk again it's it's die another day but it's a point that i have to make i know that we look back at die another day whether we were watching it then or now about all of the cgi and i've critiqued it as well but at that time at that moment not just with bond but with so many other films there really was just a general movement in action filmmaking towards utilizing cgi and yes there's a difference between good cgi mediocre cgi and bad cgi um but this is not the only franchise or film of the time that took this 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 direction took this step and the cgi didn't necessarily live up to what say a film today and, and how seamless CGI is today that people don't even know that they're seeing it on screen, right? Um, the technology has developed so much. And so I just want us to always like, I know it gets a lot of hate out there. And my dad loves Die Another Day. So I will always be there to kind of defend him on it. But I can understand why, you know, the, the the producers would hear that and be like, sure, this is the direction that we're going in. Maybe it could possibly work. Other films are doing it. We want to stay at the forefront of action filmmaking. Like a lot of that makes sense to me. Did it fully work? No, but I can understand, you know, the, the movement motivation behind it. And because of that, I can also see the pivot towards Casino Royale, right? And so to me, it serves like a really great purpose uh, in terms of defining different waves of, of bonds. So I just want to defend, put some defensive uh, barriers a little bit around Die Another Day and some of the decisions that were, were made there, because I kind of understand them. Jeez, to counter your argument, I could say that the the, the reliance on CGI under the diner day was it a bit like you know we can't have a salt mine gap at the end of Doctor Strange Love? It's like well everybody else is doing this now, so we have to do it. Yeah, they're always they're always fighting this. You know, we have to stay relevant. You know, the, the, every time you read a newspaper article, you know, will Bond survive True Lies? Will Bond survive Austin Powers? Will Bond survive our man Flynn? Yeah, he, yeah, Bond will. And maybe it's a question of leading versus following, right? Yeah. And we've talked about this on this podcast where, you know, Bond films are really at the forefront in the 60s. And in many ways, as they move through, they've responded to different cinematic traditions, but you're seeing their eyes of blockbuster action filmmaking. And this was responding to a trend rather than say integrating it maybe mm-hmm. in a more uh, moderate type of, of, of way. And, and, and maybe it's a big lesson learned. And, and doing it for the right reasons mm-hmm. versus the just taking the easy, just cause. Yeah. yeah. I still want to find out from Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, what their alternative escape from that glider was. They won't say. They won't. Tell, they won't tell anybody what it was. Oh, really? It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't parasurfing an iceberg. Huh. So it was they a, had a different idea. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So yeah. more unrealistic Saving than it. that. <laughs> 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 it's just like, what were they thinking? Straps the jet engine onto his back and flies off. <laughs> Makes the jet back. That's right. Out of the bits. <laughs> Fifteen seconds. What were your uh, rejected timelines, Cal? Well, I did. That that was my number one, but I was nervous in case anyone else uh, also had it. So my other ones were uh, James Brolin's Octopussy. 
Uh, nah. that, that would have <laughs> done like because then that would presumably if that had gone well that might have knocked Dalton off the timeline you know we would move you know if he'd have mm-hmm. done the the four films um uh Henry Cavill in Casino Royale obviously we all know about that one came very close um and I, I if someone went with the Tarantino one this would have been my second one to go with which would have been Roger Moore in the living daylights <laughs> just keep on going <laughs> with Roger see how that would have turned out can you imagine him parachuting down onto Gibraltar. <laughs> no. <laughs> and jumping on top of the Land Rover. But can you imagine? Be, be in, oofs, oofs. But his relationship <laughs> with Kara Malovi, I think it would have had like the Stacey Sutton, Melina Havelock, I don't say ick factor, but just the age difference and the fact mm. that there's so much attention, if it was with that script, was is on their relationship and growing and developing it. And I'm not an ageist here. You know, love comes in many different shapes and forms, but there is a significant age gap, I think, between mm. them that I, I, some of us may have struggled watching it, fully buying mm. into it. Mm. I feel like the, the Roger Moore age gaps are – it, it's a feature, not a bug, I guess they say online. <laughs> you know, we, we notice them and we're, and we're more uh, apt to call them out later, but they're happening from the jump. Like yeah, That is true. St- you know, Jane Seymour is what, 20-something, 22? Very young. Yeah. He's yeah. twice her age mm-hmm. already in his first movie. <laughs> and, it, and it's just like, you know, he becomes that dazed and confused joke. I get older, they stay the same age. <laughs> it's not really where you want your bonds to be. Well, that's like teaching, isn't it? Lisa? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I think, you know, Phil, and it's not just James Bond that does it. It's a broader oh, sure. trope in cinematic history. And you can look, there's a great uh, graphs online. If you look at um, Scarlett Johansson, and if you just Google her love interest, you see like her actual age and the age of her love interest. Yeah. And some of them, there's pretty big gaps, but rarely do you see it with an older woman. And we're talking here about heterosexual relationships on screen, an older woman and a string of much younger men as their as, as their co-star. So it is a broader trope that they tap that they're tapping into. It's not just a James Bond thing, but I think it's something that is very evident in certain films, as as you're pointing out. Yeah. There's got to be a whole separate uh, conversation to be had about how the fact that Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible has had a wife since the third movie, but they, right. they can't be together and he right. has to go and live her life and he'll always just pine for her like a monk. It's like Niles and Maris. It's like Niles and Maris and Frasier now, isn't it? It's like, she's, she'll be seen reading the newspaper at the breakfast table and he yeah. pops out to do something. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I got two, one of which is very malformed, um, which will go first. I've been thinking about this a lot this week, but I can't quite pin it down. And that's Bond was created by Fleming post-war, right? Uh-huh. But what if it wasn't World War II? Mm. What if Fleming created Bond after World War One or the Great War, as it was known at the time? And Bond was a character of the 20s. Mm. And I'm... I don't know. I didn't know very much about the 20s until I came up with this idea. So I've been doing a lot of research into the 20s. This is the education system, right? So, which is now 100 years ago. So it's kind of interesting to look back exactly 100 years ago. Where were we? And like this time 100 years ago, the very first radio stations were popping up in the States. Um, The Model T was invented. Flight was kind of, commercial flights were kind of starting to maybe be a thing sometime in the future. 
the word robot first appeared. Um, and all of the technology that we know today was basically kicking off in the 20s. Wow. Um, hmm. What an interesting playground for the Bond character to be in mm -hmm. with weird people inventing strange things to take over the world um, uh, and the whole futurism of the 20s. Interesting. Well, to be fair, I think they called it robot back then. Just <laughs> 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 to be accurate. Um, gosh, you know, I, I, I'm here comes some ignorance, but the what else is new? The uh, the. <laughs> The twenties. I wonder if the twenties would have sort of penned him in somewhat, like a uh, the way that post the post war, as you say, all of these inventions sort of like exploded him into the the world at large, and and it let him have adventures that were so beyond you know his his home base. Whereas that's probably it would have been three weeks on a steamship exactly, to get yeah. somewhere. Yeah. And you know there were pulp heroes in the twenties. Uh, you know, Bulldog Drummond and 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 other other characters like you know Sac the Sax Romer created um, that didn't survive into the modern era. And I wonder right. if there's a reason that their playground was so much smaller and so much mm -hmm. less fantastical as a result. It would have been a lot of trains, a lot of trains, <laughs> a lot more trains. Fleming, Fleming loved the train. And I wonder, yeah. you know, Fleming wasn't just writing in post-war, but it was coming into the Cold War and it was a very different climate. And so, and I'm, I'm, I'm relying here on the work of Sam, Sam Goodman. He's written a lot about it from this era, but he's talked about the fact that like people reading these stories were dealing with the aftermath of the war and the uncertainties of the Cold War. And so they were able to sort of pour over not just the stories written by Fleming, but other authors at the time. There's a reason why sort of spy fiction um, was on the rise was because they were able to sort of tap into these insecurities of the time and have, uh, we, we talk about like in academia, like Texts can do like the uh, contemporaneous like work of, of culture, right? Where you can sort of open the book or watch the movie and you can talk about issues that are taking place at the same time, sometimes setting them in a different time, different space or in a, in a different media. Um, and there's a safety in that distance, but you can sort of work through some of the social anxieties that you're feeling because of that text. And so the popularity of them is really rooted in um, the uncertainties of the time. And I don't know that much about Again, 1920s, not really sure what was going on, if there was that same uncertain climate. No. And, and, and if his, his, his novels then would have sort of that, the same, say, urgency and tension that is there in the 1950s and makes its way into the 1960s. Yeah, I don't think there would have been. The 20s was a very, from what I know of it, it was very uh, time of optimism. So that's yeah. why it's called the Roaring 20s, right? America, basically, the America we know today was basically born in the 20s. That's when it boomed. That's yeah. when a lot of these things came to be. So, um, yeah, it, it wouldn't have had the same backdrop. And what about sex? I mean, what, it, it, we're also thinking here about like the 50s and then, of course, the James Bond films coming out in the swinging 60s where you can have a lot more, say, free love and it's liberal sexualities and stuff like that, moving away from more traditional notions. It then opens up, you know, the question of how important is sex, sexuality, sexual conquest, which is how I would sort of phrase the, it in the Bond universe. Um, would Bond be sleeping with ally mm. agents and women in order to gain information and have a tipping point in the plot it, at that time period i'm not sure if it would 
fly just because there were, even though it was a time of, as you say, optimism, it was not a liberal, necessarily a liberal time of sexuality. Um, and, and, and you're seeing sort of women eventually getting the vote. Again, my timeline, my American history, not up to point, but yeah, I don't know where women would be in that time, but there was still a right. strong connection with being part of the domestic sphere. So it would be a very different bond. And I think sex mm-hmm. would probably not be a huge part of it. A lot of smoke in there. <laughs> like a chimney. <laughs> Tell you, it's, a, it's a malformed idea. I was just like curious the other night thinking about it. It's like hmm. we always peg Fleming as a post-war hero, but we don't actually consider what the war was. Mm-hmm. Um, so the one, the one I've got is a little bit more mechanical, um, and it's kind of like the domino effect. So, and and, and here's a multiverse I, I don't think I'd really like to live in. Um, and Calvin, you you won't like this at all. Oh. So <laughs> consider this. Hmm. It's 1986, and NBC doesn't renew yeah. Remington Steel. So Brosnan plays Bond in The Living Daylights. License to Kill isn't the film we know it because there's no way they would do that no. with Brosnan. Hmm. The legal action would still happen. That would still take place. Brosnan would be out in the cold for six years. Um, we have. Maybe Brosnan would voice James Bond Jr. Um, <laughs> in the gap. He could sing the theme tune. Um, <laughs> so it gets to 1994 and they think, you know, this has been too long a gap and Brosnan steps down. So they hire Sean Bean <gasps> to be James, to play James Bond in Goldeneye. And he doesn't die. <laughs> he doesn't die. <laughs> but then we get the Sean Bean era. Of Bond. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I think that could work. Like, I, I, Sean Bean's a, a great actor in his own right. Uh, I'd hate to lose my beloved Brosnan. Um, but uh, Well, you'd get I, two movies. You'd get two movies. Get no. You'd get him earlier. Yeah. It's not enough, Calvin. No, it's not. No. <laughs> I need my three plus enough. one that I don't really like to be satisfied with Brosnan. <laughs> No, it's, a, it's 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 an interesting idea. It's a fun idea. What would have Pierce Brosnan been like as Bond in that Remington Steel era? And as a as someone who watched Remington Steel at that time, I was pulling for him to be James Bond, and I wanted him to be James Bond. However, he was actually too young to play James Bond effectively. He needed to grow into the role. And when you even look at Goldeneye now, I'm like, well, he's still kind of youngish. Uh, so I think he would have been. To, I don't think he was ready for James Bond, even though I wanted him to play James Bond at that mm-hmm. time. I think he needed more time to mature as an actor. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's also, you get the, you know, everyone says you get the James Bond for the era. And I think Pierce Brosnan's greatest thing that he did as James Bond is he made him popular again mm-hmm. for that for that, for that that audience who had lost him for that that long period. And Sean Bean is a very good actor, and Clive Owen is a very good actor, but I don't know. There was some. There's some. There's a lightness about Pierce Brosnan that re, that was very appealing as a way as an entry point into the entire series that uh, made him the right guy for the right time. Mm-hmm. And I would say my students would echo that as we make our way through the Bond franchise. 
uh, by the time we get to Brosnan, there's a shift in tone when in their personal impressions of what do they think about Bond? Like there, it's a mixed bag through the semester. And then we get to Brosnan and there is like a, an excitement about him as being James Bond. There's a lot of things going on in the Brosnan films. There's a shift in the gender politics, but he really did inspire in audiences, whether you grew up during that time period or even people who are watching it now, there's an excitement about Bond. And I, I, by the time we get to the Craig era, my students really love Casino Royale. And then they're like, oh, where do we go from here? Um, but I, I don't feel as though Craig, I think, hmm, how do I say this? I think Casino Royale is a brilliant film saying that. Okay. But I don't know if he inspires the same type of excitement that Brosnan did at the time period, like contemporaneously for James Bond coming back. Um, and I feel this excitement that makes its way across all four of Brosnan films. Again, whether you like Die Another Day or not, there still is sort of like he's Bond. Um, whereas I think Daniel Craig, just because of the tone of the films, and it's n- I'm not knocking Daniel Craig at all. I'm knocking more of the tone of the films. It's been like, oh gosh, How's he going to hurt this one? You know what I mean? Like it's a bit of an emotional chore sometimes, but that's just the nature of the films. But I do think Brosnan did at the time what was necessary. And I'm not sure, again, I don't know Sean Bean's um, popularity uh, broadly, if he would have inspired the same degree of lightness and excitement um, that Brosnan did. I think he's a great actor. Um, maybe then, you know, my idea that Sean Bean's a living spoiler, like he's in a film and you're like, when are you going to die? And how are you going to die? Like, I just wait for it, right? Um, you know what's going to happen. It's just a matter of when. Um, I think it would totally have changed his trajectory <laughs> in terms mm-hmm. of the roles that he gets. But I, I mm. for those of you who know him better, like would he have really given people that, that oomph and that excitement? No, but the excitement is more about awareness, right? So Roger mm-hmm. Moore was a, a very popular TV star, and and uh, and Brosnan was on. You know, he was the heir apparent to this role. Everybody was expecting it, and I think a lot of the excitement was tied to the fact that they knew who he was, that he was on their TV every week, and and they sort of like heard it and like, yeah, we get that. That makes sense. Uh, and and the excitement is is baked into that sort of foregone conclusion of it all. I think, whereas Bean would have been a uh, a Dalton or a uh, a Craig choice, which no one saw coming, really. Yeah, I mean, for those not aware, I mean, Bean went for the Bond role mm-hmm. for Golden mm-hmm. and tested against it, and Campbell really liked him mm-hmm. for it. Mm-hmm. So I think he would have been the choice had Johnson, for whatever reason, not taken it. Mm-hmm. Not Liam Neeson, not Ralph Fiennes. I think it would have been Bean. Mm-hmm. Um, and given he was younger than Brosnan by five or six years, mm-hmm. um, he could have shot through the fourth film quite easily and had a Roger kind of tenure mm-hmm. had his films been successful. So we could have seen six or seven films from him. Or would it have been more of Dalton where the public just never really warmed to him in the moment and, and sort of later on got on board? Mm. I but wonder. now I wonder if like the lack of warmth at the moment for Dalton was a disappointment that it wasn't, as you say, the air a pair parent with like Brosnan. Mm-hmm. Like now I'm thinking like there were, he wa- he was swimming in very muddy waters and I'm not sure if Dalton's bond was given a full shot at the moment because of the these casting elements. Whereas I, I, if, if Brosnan was previous, um, I don't think Sean Bean would have to sort of swim through those muddy waters. Plus, isn't he blonde? Would we have had the same freak out? 
that like oh, bond is blonde. I don't know his eye color, but I don't think it's I don't think it's blue. I Nothing against me, but I bet he would have dyed it in a heartbeat. <laughs> <laughs> he wouldn't have been he wouldn't have been so stubborn about it. He would have been like, yeah, whatever, sure. I'll dye it black. It's fine. Yeah, no. It, when when a new bond arrives, it sh- it should feel like th- th- their mo- this was their moment. It was preordained. It wasn't that some other there was a contractual dispute and the real bond couldn't do it. He 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 did. I think that's a great point. He was he he didn't have the wind at his sails. Mm-hmm. It was it was the runner up. Well, according to official history, he was always their first choice. <laughs> Revisionist history. Yeah, and you could you could say George suffered a bit of that too. Mm-hmm. The imposter syndrome of you weren't the first choice for this film. Yeah, right. I used to refer to George as somebody had to be the first one through the door, and then he yeah. died, he died he died so that others might live. But I guess <laughs> it's not quite it's not quite true, is it? Because after after someone so iconic is in the role so you know as as roger was the next guy kind of has to take the hit yeah so sorry next guy after daniel craig well yeah that's what i, I say <laughs> about lazenby he proved that it, the, the role didn't belong to just one person yeah he broke the seal yeah all right so if you you can't vote for your own but which of the uh what is recap so you, you, <laughs> yeah. want do, you want to do the recap of all so the recaps was um lisa had diana russ playing solitaire slash michelle yo coming back for the start of the other day um Mark had what if James Bond Jr. was great. Phil had Connery running through the 70s. Um, Calvin had Quentin Tarantino doing Casino Royale, and I had Sean Bean in Goldner. Mm. Right. I'll go first. Um, (laughs) I'm going to vote for Mark's um, if James Bond Jr. had been great. Uh, I like James Bond Jr. as it is anyway. I'm one of those people. I know, Lisa, you're another one. But if, if I mean, I would quite happily wipe that from existence if it meant that we got the Batman animated series kind of uh, yeah. James Bond Jr. And what that would have meant for spin-offs and like that kind of stuff. If the film series could stay the same, but maybe we did have like the DC universe does. They're, they're always releasing, I think it's like once a year, maybe even once every six months, these animated Batman spin-offs yeah. um, and things which are really Feature cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And if that had have kind of opened the the gate to perhaps more mass audiences being up for that kind of thing, uh, so that that's where my vote goes. Yeah, I'm. I, I think they were they were all great. What ifs? I'm I'm fascinated by the idea of Connery continuing on through the different ages and, and growing with the role. The only reason I wouldn't want to see that is because I like having all the actors and I like all the films we've got, but I do like this notion of experimenting with tone and having the films mature and having the actor mature. I think that's fun. Well, in the interest of spreading it around, although I'm very, (laughs) I'm very intrigued by the idea of, um, of a quality animated series and maybe not a bond junior, but like James Bond in animation would be really Mm -hmm. interesting to see if it was done well. Um, Mm. But uh, like, uh, yeah, I want to see Quentin Tarantino's Casino Royale. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> that's where I'm going. Because huh. as much as I would love like a a good James Bond Junior, <laughs> 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 I, I mean, I I, I kind of like James Bond Junior because it's bad. 
I mean, sometimes <laughs> things are so bad that they're good. Um, right. And I, and I kind of love the hate that it gets. So I'm just like, yeah, um, I do kind of want to see Quentin Tarantino just, and I'm not talking about Casino Royale. I'm going to like say Quentin Tarantino doing the next James Bond film and just like, laying it out there and giving us like the throwback fifties Tarantino dialogue, Supreme Bond mm-hmm. film. So that's kind of taking the idea and adjusting it, but it's, I think it's a really good idea. I'm going to kind of follow you on that, Lisa, and say, I'm going to pick Quentin Tarantino and Brosnan doing Casino Rob for a different reason, mm-hmm. which is I really can't see Brosnan doing a tough, gritty script like that mm. and I think he'll try really hard and I think it will end up being really funny that's <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> so <laughs> it'll, it'll look great you know it'll be really interesting so I'm going to pick that too so I think that's a clear winner is ah. Quentin's Quentin's Casino there it is so well done Calvin <laughs> what do you, you win Quentin. yeah what do I win <laughs> 65 episodes of James Bond Jr. on Blu-ray. 59 to go. <laughs> oh, I'd take the Blu-ray, yeah. Uh, what you might not know, Mark, is um, I, I actually managed to get the DVD set. Somebody digitally copied the master tapes, so I have James Bond Jr. Oh, very yeah, very in, nice. In very good quality, so very, there's very no nice. excuse that we can't finish them all now. <laughs> so on that note, thanks, Phil, Calvin, Mark, and Lisa. Welcome to the clan, Mark. Thank you for having me. We'll see you all next time. Take care. Bye. See ya.